you know, I didn't want to be pigeonholed in the, oh, the Palestinian artist. It's like, can I just be an artist? My contribution to the world goes beyond whatever national or ethnic identity I have. It's all an attempt, really, just to identify the humanity that we all have, that we all share, but also to help shift people's perspectives to understand that though something does not look like you or sound like you, does not mean it is any less sophisticated. See me as a human first, first and foremost. See me, period. I think, you know, a great deal of the issues that we have in this world is we don't really see each other. Palestine, to me, does not mean a place that belongs exclusively to Arabs and Muslims. It belongs to the people of the Abrahamic faiths. You know, their holy sites are all there, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find Joy in Conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. I've always been drawn to books and words. I love being steeped in new ideas and having my mind awakened to a perspective that I've never encountered before, or a framework that shifts how I think and gives me a new lens to look at the world. Some of my favorite places in the world revolve around the culture of words. Bookstores where I search the stacks for yet another book to add to the mountains in my house. Coffee shops where I've spent entire days writing and having conversation. For me, speaking, listening, reading, and writing, that offers clarity of thought. The act of articulating oneself, for me, it's sublime. The encounter with a well-crafted sentence, a sentence that possesses the power to produce meaning, that can be ecstatic. I'm drawn to the way people and places are woven together on the page. A 19th century philosopher's ideas and a 20th century literary critic may be referenced side by side within the same book. This collision, this coalescing, this discourse and dance is so vital to reading. It's so vital to the words and ideas that I find illuminating. The entanglement of all these different influences coming together in a book that amplify, echo, complement, challenge, and subvert each other, well, that creates an inner world, an inner world that Hannah Arendt referred to as the life of the mind. But it's not only through books that people experience the dizzying satisfaction of powerful awakenings and the enticing melding of ideas. I've always been amazed by people in my life who are transported by music. Talking to them, there's almost a mystical quality to what they experience through rhythms and melodies. And what impresses me is that I know this feeling. I've just always found it through different sources. It's not as though intellect and art exist on different planes. It's clear that the entry points may be different, But the experience, the experience of encountering new worlds, new ideas, has real echoes and reverberations. Music is this conduit for so many people that brings them into dialogue with ideas and places 
things that aren't bound to where they are in the world at the very moment that they're listening to the music. For me personally, music has an ineffable quality. It's a quality that's emotive, but there's also a substrata, a subtext that I know exists to the acts of composing, performing, listening and sharing sounds and songs. I wanted to learn more about music's ability to be a form of cultural exchange, an expression of identity, and a fusion of influences into something that can stun and stop, soothe and stimulate. I was curious about the way musicians manage to navigate the cacophony of the world around us and manage to harmonize not just their voices and instruments, but to really harmonize identities and heritages. How do people tell the story of who they are and where they're from and what they want? How do people tell the story of where they're going each time their fingers pluck a string? How are musical collaborations inspiring examples of cultural translation and exchange? How can collaborations between artists be a humble expression of what is so often absent in the politics of intergroup relations? So I set out to speak with someone whose creative work lives in this space, the space where cultural heritage, individual identity, deep philosophy, and an eagerness to connect with others is fundamental to this person's artistic vision. We'll hear from Ronnie Malley. Ronnie is based in Chicago, but his work as a musician, his memories, his aspirations, and his heart are more global. Let's listen to Ronnie discuss what it means to him to be Palestinian, to hold Jerusalem in his heart. Let's listen to him discuss what it means to be a global citizen, an artist and musician, and a teacher. Yella, let's learn together. First and foremost, I'm a human being. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a teacher. Uh, I'm a producer, a musician, and an artist. But I happen to be a first-generation American-born Palestinian. And I say that with pride, not as a uh, political statement. I don't say that as a means of antagonizing anybody or anything. That's just how we grew up. The region that my family is from is there. I still have family there. My mother and father were both born in Jerusalem. My mother is from Jerusalem. How would I identify? I have no other way to identify as, other than being Palestinian. And in fact, you know, identifying as quote unquote Arab, sure, by virtue of the fact that I speak Arabic. But the truth is, Arabs, just like Jews, just like anybody else, you know, they have many tribes. And <laughs> some come from the Gulf Desert, some come from Yemen. Some come from uh, the uh, Emirates, and some come from other regions. I identify myself as a citizen of the world because where I come from historically is one of the most cosmopolitan areas in the entire world. Ronnie identifies as a teacher. He has a vision of what education can offer students and society. He teaches with purpose and intention. As someone who cultivates so much in students, through his compassion and a willingness to tap into identity and the emotive side of learning and artistic exploration. 
for you as somebody who self-identifies as a teacher, what is it that you see as your philosophy or your vision of education? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and how, if at all, does that intersect with what you said about being somebody who's a global citizen? As a teacher, from my background, to be more specific in global music studies, I use art, music. I'm also a playwright, but I also use storytelling and music and theater to uh, help put us in a place that allows us to digest, I guess, information or, or something about the world. And I've always found that the arts are a, a wonderful place that allow us to be vulnerable enough to sit in the theater or in the classroom or wherever it is, but also uh, open enough to receive what is being told to us. But my main objective, I mean, purpose and mission for teaching has always been to really foster a sense of global citizenry in my students and in myself and and also to learn. I mean, you know, there is something to the adage, you know, if you want to learn something, teach it. And I, I, I can't tell you how often that that has been the case with a lot of the music I study and the cultures that I studied through music. You know, music I found and drama, especially in theater and literature, especially in music, have proven to be really exceptional vehicles to get people to understand other cultures, to get people to come together in one place who may not otherwise do so. I grew up playing rock and roll. And at the very same time, my father, who was a musician as well, had us playing Egyptian, North African, and Middle Eastern music all of our lives too. And I thought, okay, well, Egyptian music is the best music. I don't want to hear anything from Iran or from, from Persia. But then I had to challenge my own biases, even as a child, even as a young kid growing up, playing all of this music. And that experience helped me to understand how I can do the same, but also how I can identify that in my students. And so that I'm not just preaching at them, we're discovering together why something is very important and why it's important to approach things with respect. You know, for example, many people use the term classical music. Well, it, it's almost just implied that when people hear that term, particularly in the West, we just assume Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, Tchaikovsky. And the truth is, Indian music has classical music. You know, there's Indian classical. There is Middle Eastern classical. There's Persian classical. There's Chinese classical. And these are traditions that are far older than Western classical music. I use this only as a model to kind of demonstrate that this is why I really enjoy using music, because it's, it's, it's a place of culture and any form of expression in any society, be it folk music or classical music, is a demonstration of the society's civility. And, you know, it's what it takes for a civilization to happen, is humans find a space that they can actually express themselves artistically. Music is very cumulative. And I just, I just try to, you know, make my students understand that nothing is born in a vacuum. It has taken the entire human family to get to where we are all at to celebrate in this. As an individual, a citizen of the world, and a musician, Ronnie is involved in numerous collaborations. These collaborations are with Sephardic groups, among many, many others. Let's hear from Ronnie what it means to collaborate artistically and why collaboration is such a vital part of what he does. What does it mean to be in dialogue through music? 
What does dialogue and music look or feel like? And then what do you work with another artist or group of artists? What stories are you looking to tell? I have collaborations with groups in India. I have collaborations with groups here in Chicago that blend Indian, African, Arab, Spanish classical music all together. And we try to demonstrate literally that unity on stage and that dialogue. You know, it doesn't mean that dialogue always just flows smoothly, but the attempt and, and to try to do that, that abandon that I've given to the universe basically has led me to various collaborations with different people. I've had students who were uh, cantors in the Jewish synagogue who wanted to learn more about the music theory of the Middle East. But that music theory is shared by anybody who's from the Middle East, Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, and beyond. And so it's a music theory that really spread with the spread of Islam. Not that it's per se Islamic music. However, there are a lot of piyotim, hymns, that come from different regions in the Jewish tradition, from Syria, from Morocco, from Algeria, from Iran, from Andalusia. All of that led me to really discover a lot more Sephardic music as well. I was asked to actually participate with the Newberry Consort, which is also an early music uh, ensemble. We're talking about you know, music ensembles that use old instruments. And the program we were working on specifically was uh, Sephardic music and uh, music of Spain and the Renaissance. And in it, they wanted to include what this amalgamation of music and ethnicities was. Uh, so when we're looking at Andalusia, we're looking at not just Jewish music, though we were focusing on Sephardic music, the sound and the musicians and the players that would have been involved in that also would have played instruments like I play, like El Oud, you know, ostensibly a Middle Eastern instrument. It's where the lute comes from. In fact, the word lute comes from al-ud, a lute, al-ud. To get to the, the short of the long, ultimately, a couple of players I worked with on that particular project, they were already long-term members of Apollo's Fire. They are an early music uh, ensemble. Uh, Apollo's Fire had also done something that was uh, for the Sephardic tradition. And because when we talk about Sephardic music, particularly from Andalusia, we're talking about an era of music where people were sharing in one culture from various Abrahamic traditions. So we know Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived on the Iberian Peninsula, under Islamic rule at least, from the 8th century to the 15th century. So we're talking about a, a, a period of time in history that is older than the age of America. So Apollo's Fire wanted to put together a program called O Jerusalem, and they wanted to celebrate the quarters of Jerusalem. Specifically, we wanted to celebrate the interfaith aspect of it. And so I was invited as a, a, a guest to talk about this, and it just coincided with the fact that I happened to be from Jerusalem, and I happened to be, you know, Palestinian. And so we demonstrated, you know, music, and we told some stories as well about our shared heritage uh, of this beautiful city of, of Jerusalem. So we represented the program with uh, an Armenian piece to represent Armenian quarter, something from the Christian, something Jewish, something Arab and Muslim, just to kind of give people a sense with just the beautiful imagery of obviously the, the, the city itself. And each share our different stories about that. For me, anything that allows us to finally talk about that kind of an issue and that city 
without necessarily being political about it. I welcome that opportunity at any time because I think it put Palestinian or Israeli or Jewish or Christian or Muslim aside. It really touched my heart because we played in synagogues where I was unapologetic about where my family is from and, and who we were. I focused on, you know, the story of my grandmother living in Jerusalem, whose, you know, neighbor was a rabbi uh, living in our building, whose children used to call my great-grandfather Baba. We have the capacity to see each other as human beings. You know, I refuse to fall into the tropes and the rhetoric that people put out there. You know, oh, they've been fighting forever. Those people have been fighting. Who's those people? We're all Semitic. I'm Semitic, you know? It's, uh, who's those people? Hebrew is a Semitic language, Arabic is a Semitic language. The world can get confused very quickly because many narratives are, are moving at the same time. But uh, I, I was happy to participate on something like that with an award-winning ensemble to really exemplify one of the, you know, one of my favorite cities on this planet. Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Al-Quds. The city has many names. It has many quarters. It has layers of history and spirituality. In this walled city, one hears church bells, the call to prayer, the sound of prayers uttered as people daven. There's a musicality to the streets. The city itself has inspired ballads. It is a place that is loved. Yet that love has also been a source of pain as well. It is not a city without tribulations. For all the harmonizing that can occur between communities, Jerusalem has not always been the navel of such tranquility and peaceful coexistence. Even still, despite the pain that is as much a part of the city as is its iconic stone buildings, Jerusalem beckons for many people. This is true for Ronnie. Jerusalem is a part of who Ronnie is and how he interacts with the world. What is it about the city that speaks to you? What do you find there? And when you're in Chicago, when you're elsewhere in the world, what of Jerusalem remains with you? It's always in, in my heart. You know, it, it's always on my mind. When they say Jerusalem fever, it's a real thing, <laughs> you know? For me, especially though, it's it's not just the neighborhoods, and it's not just you know the fact that my family has property there, but also property that they've lost in 1948 as well in West Jerusalem. I have that shared experience with many Palestinians, but I also have the shared experience with many people who just view this place as a sacred, holy place. I love the history of Jerusalem. I love the fact that it's like, how many people have come here? How many people have conquered? How many people have left? And, you know, I've always thought Jerusalem is an international place. If you are Christian, if you are Muslim, if you are Jewish, it belongs to you, too. Why can't we use this as an example for, for the world to do so? It shouldn't be run by any one religion at all. In fact, it should be run by any who are sharing this place as a sacred space by the Abrahamic faith. I know it's a lofty idea. I know I get laughed at, you know, thinking too utopian. <laughs> but... I like to cut through the chase and find the common sense of what makes sense. I would love to, you know, not have a military barricade, and I'd love to go visit the Wailing Wall myself. I'd love to see it. 
I've visited the Holy Sepulchre. I've visited, you know, the Dome of the Rock. I used, when I was visiting Jerusalem the very first time in the 90s, I was staying in the West Bank. But I went to Jerusalem every single day, even on my own as a kid. Just being on the streets, the to know that the history of, of humanity and the civilization, you know, the, from an archaeological perspective, it, it's fascinating. You know, then you add to it the whole aspect of spirituality and history. There's so much to be learned there from each other and from the world and by the world that I, I can't help but love it. I just love the fact, though, that I can say that in East Jerusalem, just through uh, the Damascus Gate, I can point to where my mother was born. She was born right there. I can walk down the street and I see something, you know, in the same old quarter, I see an Armenian church. And then I see something Catholic or I see something Orthodox or I see something, you know, Jewish that is is not uh, Ashkenazi, that is something Moroccan or, or something Sephardic or something Iraqi. It's just, it amazes me. As Mahmoud Darwish, the famous Palestinian poet, said, Jerusalem is the city of peace that has not known one day of peace. <laughs> So Jerusalem is one source of influence in Ronnie's music. Even still, Ronnie's musical range is not solely inspired by Jerusalem. So what else inspires Ronnie? What other sounds of Palestine is he familiar with? My music personally, I mean, I do everything from composed music for theater, to film, to playing traditional music from India to Morocco to to Sephardic music, not exclusively just Palestinian music. I mean, I'm very familiar with Palestinian folk music, and every village that you go to has its own nuances. You know, when I go to Galilee or when I go up to, to the north, you know, they're listening to a different style of music that's, you know, closer to classical style, uh, uh, classical Arabic, that is. And they have an affinity towards music from uh, the greater Levant, from Syria and Lebanon, and also from Egypt. When you get to you know the West Bank, it's it's dealing with a different set of circumstances, different styles of music. That's just the thing. It's it's important for people to know that not only are the Arab populations you know not a monolith, Palestinian people are not a monolith either. You know, village to village, you have different accents. I speak to my mom in one dialect, and I speak to my dad in another. <laughs> Ronnie's identity, his music. It all connects to lived experiences and the memories of those experiences. Let's listen as Ronnie shares some memories of his time visiting Palestine. I'll never forget my first trip to Palestine in 93, 92. Part of the reason my grandfather really took us there was uh, he wanted me to help him till the land. <laughs> so his, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we had trees all over. I mean, there was, name it. I mean, we had an all, almond trees. We had fig trees, peaches. We had lemons. We had, literally, it was one of those places where I can open the window, stick my hand out, and pull out a lemon to, you know, to squeeze on my salad. You know, when I was younger, uh, it, uh, it was very deep-rooted in me that uh, I need to go back to my, my homeland. I need to go back there, specifically, especially because of the cultural aspect, not out of a political need, but really as like we were learning Middle Eastern music here and I, I was fine being American. I mean, I've had relatives, distant relatives in America since 1893, you know, uh, since the, the Chicago World's Fair. 
but we've also also had consistent relatives inhabiting Palestine and inhabiting Ramallah and, and Jerusalem since then as well. And so I just felt like there was a point in time where it's like, if I'm going to really go full force in my matriculation and music and art, I, I need to be there. I wanted to go be able to go to Egypt. I wanted to be able to go to Lebanon to other places to study the music where, where it was. Ronnie also has stories that are more bitter. Stories of seeing his ancestral property no longer accessible. He connects these stories to his children, how he will raise them, and what he wants them to know about where they're from, what they've lost, and what it is that they can aspire for. I can't put into words the, the, the feeling I had to stand beside in front of buildings that are ostensibly you know, my inheritance, but to, to know they don't belong to me anymore, but to still see, literally with my own eyes, that my family name is still etched into the building that the Quranic scriptures that my great-grandfather had put on mosaics are still etched into the balconies, into the building. The saying that he had written above the courtyard is still there in Arabic. It said, Whoever shall pass through these doors, may they pass through in peace. Now, to, to feel that, to think to myself, like, how was this just taken? You know, regardless of whatever political reasons, whatever wars or any of that stuff, it just didn't feel right. And did it, can I say it filled me with anger? It did, but it filled me it filled me with sadness even more. It filled me with this, but also renewed purpose of saying, you know what? Maybe I won't be able to do this today. Maybe I won't be able to get them even in my lifetime, but I will be damned if I don't let my children know exactly what happened. I will be damned if I don't let them know that this does belong to you. I mean, we still have the deeds to this land. I've seen them, you know, but there's no recourse. So, yeah, in, in that terms, they will be raised to know about their history and they will be raised to go back to their father's you know, homeland on a yearly basis. They also need to know the story in order for them to know their identity. There's no way I will conceal that. And that's an extremely important thing, but also for them to know that they also have family there. Also for them to know that they should be free and comfortable in coming to visit this place just like anybody else. And, and that is what I'm going to instill in my children uh, more than anything. I mean, it's, it's circumstance <laughs> that, you know, this is the way it is. I want them also to understand, though, you know, peace. I want them to understand um, you know, that we can all live together. And I, I think they're really getting that. And I, I intend to take them on a yearly basis at their own birthright to see Jerusalem. Ronnie is a teacher. He's also a parent. There are approaches that he brings to both. He's also a proponent of collaborating with Jewish artists, performing in Jewish spaces, and bringing Palestinian identity into communion in conversation with these audiences. So when he performs at a synagogue, for instance, what does he want this particular audience to see of him as a person, as a Palestinian, and of Palestinians more broadly as a people? We are a very diverse people. That's, that's the very first thing. Secondly, we are a people that has 
a variety of faiths. We are not only Christian and Muslim. We're Christian. We're Muslim. We're Jersey. If you're going to the Samaritans who still practice their Christianity, they live in Nevis. They're Jewish. They're Jewish Palestinians. You know, we have Sufis. We have Baha'is. We have a variety of a, a diverse group of people that share in a culture, though, with things that are based on the geography of that region, be it musically, be it uh, culinary, be it literary or literature, you know, we share this kind of combined culture. We are not a, a monolith, so to speak. Some of us are religious. Some of us are secular. Some of us are completely atheist. Something I'd, I'd like people to take away is that we are very diverse and we have enough room, I think, in our hearts that we can all live side by side. I have not met one Palestinian yet. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I'll, I'll say that you know, the majority that I know personally have never said that we want a Muslim state of Palestine or we want a Christian state of Palestine. They just want a state of Palestine so that they can live, period, you know, live together. You go to Ramallah, I mean, my mom's family, though we're Muslim, they all went to the, the Quaker school, the French school. My aunt teaches at the Greek Catholic school in Ramallah. The church is literally right next door to the mosque. That's not to say that Communities don't have their own issues between each other as well. You see that between the Haredi community. You see that between the Sephardic community, the Mizrahi community. I, I, I just know one thing in the end, is that the people that are there, they grew up in a place that is and has always been cosmopolitan. There has virtually been almost no people on this earth that have not traversed Jerusalem or or the Holy Land, you know? And that's just people from the region, from everywhere, you know? People go there. This is a destination. And, and you know, in some ways, I feel like it, it belongs to the world. So as a parent, a teacher, an artist, a Palestinian, and a global citizen, what is Ronnie's message? What is it that he's looking to communicate and instill with those who he nurtures and works with in these various capacities. And just instilling in them to be, you know, what I'm doing with my students, be global citizens. Tell them that, you know, if you can be anything in this world, just be kind, <laughs> be, be kind, but also be just. It's been illuminating for me to learn from them based on their reactions without nurturing it, just the natural reaction of what they find to be right or wrong. And when I see that, it just gives me more hope to not only cultivate that in them, but to have them help cultivate that in others around the world. And to stand up for, you know, injustice when they see it anywhere, but also to be curious, you know, to learn about each other, not to be too comfortable in just what they know. Listening to Ronnie, I'm left thinking about all the ways heritage, identity, memories, and personal philosophy play out in ways that can at times feel subtle beneath the surface. When listening to a song, how attentive are we to the influences and aspirations that exist in a piece of music? Playing a song can be such a seemingly innocuous act, yet that song may have taken years of self-reflection, deliberate learning, and a humble willingness to work with others who possess a shared humanity, a humanity which is not always recognized. There's courage and compassion in the work of an artist. Art can cry out against injustice. It can
can also heal. So having spoken to Ronnie, I'm left thinking about what it means for me as a global citizen, what it means to live among a mosaic of humanity, and how small acts, like playing a song, can be one step towards embracing the fullness of people throughout the world. A special thanks to Ronnie Malley. It was a treat talking to you. To learn more about Ronnie's work, visit his website at ronniemalley.com. Thanks, as always, to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy and Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song, which was not heard in this episode. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazar. All the music heard in this episode was Ronnie's. It can be found on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify, among other places. Take a listen. There's so much more of Ronnie's art and collaborations yet to discover. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Bashufakum. We'll see you next time.